Welcome to the Journey of an Aesthete podcast. Comprehensive examination of all things aesthetic, the arts, the humanities, and what it means to be human. Sound great, Andrew. Excellent. How are you? I'm I'm good this morning. Can you hear me okay and everything? Yeah, absolutely. That's important. Yeah. Um. Wow, Andrew Bajowski. It's been a while, yeah. hasn't it? Since it we has. Had... It is. Um, I am going to um. Uh, this uh, for those that don't know. This is uh, Andrew Bajowski. This is a guest that I'm really, really honored to have. Um, it's very hard to introduce this particular guest um, because of, uh, his contribution to cinema is, is, well, it's quite a contribution. I remember, I think it was in 2002, I stumbled upon Funny Haha, your mm -hmm. first feature. And I have to say that at the time, I was blown away by this film. I was, I was uh, really impressed with its intimacy and, and in some ways, this film is, is, as you've said in an interview, is a classical film, an old-fashioned film. But in other ways, in terms of American filmmaking at that time, I don't think anybody was doing stylistically what you were doing and on that level. Perhaps not since John, at least since John Cassavetes, was doing sort of similar things. And there was a sweetness to that film and, and a, a optimism and a beauty. And the, mainly, I would say, the subtlety of the interactions the film mm -hmm. is sort of about relationships between people, but in a completely um, uh, natural way, not a manufactured way. And, um, you know, it's, it's sort of a cliche to talk about um, movies or art being plot-driven versus character-driven. But if, if any film in any film was character-driven and dialogue-driven, it was funny, haha. -ha. And it's sort of, um, I think... Uh, Changed, changed American cinema and was had as a great influence, continues to have a great influence on other filmmakers. We could talk about that. So that was the beginning. And then there was Mutual Appreciation and Beeswax. And um, uh, this year, last year, uh, your latest film is Support the Girls, which is fantastic, which everybody should go out and see immediately or stream or however you can watch it. And uh, before we start, Andrew, I wanted to thank you um, for, for using so much of my music in your films over the years. Um, uh, Thank you. Na namely, namely, I think Beeswax. Um, I, think the, I think the biggest thing was computer chess, right? Because yeah, computer you chess... That, great. Yeah, I composed a piece called 1979 for that film, and that's, a, that's an incredible film as well. I mean, of course, uh, we could talk about... We're going to, if you don't mind, get into the weeds and discuss details about your experiences... Sure. Make, making these these wonderful films, and um, but I what I always like to do in these shows thus far is do start with a linear chronology, mm -hmm. and then out of that linear chronology we could become less linear and kind of get sort of improv. But we so as a foundation we'll start from the you know bi biographical chronology and then see what happens. And 
I'm going to kind of defer to you, uh, since you're the guest and your vision is what's important on this particular show, since it's about Andrew Bajowski. And so I guess we could start, I guess, with your experience. Um, I guess it was at Harvard, correct? And, and, and Rob Moss mm-hmm. and Chantal Ackerman, because I think that your roots were there. And of course, Chantal Ackerman is a rest in peace, um, is a major filmmaker and, uh, did you want to start there or talk about something else? What comes to mind if you want to talk about? Oh, whatever, whatever you like. But yeah, I mean, I had I had an extraordinary um, gaggle of mentors there. The two that you mentioned, um, also uh, a guy named Dick Rogers. Uh, oh wow! Who, yeah, and and Dusha um, Oh so wow! That, really, an extraordinary lineup, and you know, four um, quite quite diverse voices, but but all of whom you know, will, will echo in my head, certainly for as long as I'm making films. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that was, that was, that was an extraordinary privilege to, uh, in, in part, you know, I mean, some of it was, I think people think of these things in terms of instruction or what lesson did you learn or what great nugget of wisdom did they, did they give you? And, you know, and there, and there certainly were those, Things, but but more than anything, I think it was just being around artists, you know, being around people who were that seriously devoted to what they were doing, all with different motivations and different reasons. But um, just four really, really great filmmakers and really great people. I learned I learned as much I think just from being around them as human beings and how they how they conducted their their lives and how they integrated their work into their lives, I think, uh-huh. and as I did from, you know, anything they told me about anything technical. Right. So it was, so it was both technical and spiritual, you might say. Well, sure. since, there's, since there's that many, because I had forgotten that you, that do, I had forgotten you'd work with uh, mm-hmm. director Sweet Movie, and well, I'm right, what, so, I mean, my familiarity, I did not know at the time that you would study with Shantar Arkhamen. Mm-hmm. I only learned that later. You know, mm-hmm. I've been watching her films for for many years. I think I knew more about Rob Moss because he's a was a he's a regular fixture there. And what was that sure. department? It was environmental audio. This environmental, environmental studies was the name. They just changed the name this year. I can't remember the new name. It's something a lot more you know direct. I think they got tired of trying to answer people's <laughs> questions about what does that mean. It was a very seventies name for the department: visual and environmental studies. Well, that, and we, that, well that? knowing me, that's one of the things I liked about that department was that it of was course. named that. Yeah, but. Of <laughs> but go ahead. What uh, so because I, I think that that department had a mission, from what I understand. Again, I'm an outsider, and mm. this may have had an influence on your filmmaking practice. In fact, I know it did. I think it had a mission about this intimacy I talked about about camera camera getting in there and documenting things as they're unfolding in the present with a present present minded orientation. Is that true? That that was a kind of an overarching. That sounds right. Yeah, and you know, I think there's there is a clear tradition and lineage. Rob Moss, um, well, for you know, decades now, Rob Moss and Alfred Gazzetti have really been the backbone of that department. Uh, Ross McElwee uh, as well, and and um, you know, Rob and Ross at least both come out of the old MIT uh, media lab, and, and you know, so there's a whole there's a whole lineage tradition going back through um, Baker, Ricky Leacock, yeah. All the um, all the great cinema verite, yes, cinema tradition, um, and that 
you know, as far as I know, uh, still kind of lives on there. And we were that, that's still what those were the fumes we were coasting off of. Um, but I've always felt in retrospect, and you know, this may be my having drank Kool Aid there, mm-hmm. um, but documentary was the backbone of everything, even though at a certain point we were allowed freedom to go do whatever we wanted. And there was quite a bit, you know, you could, you could go make narrative work. You could, they, there was uh, always very cool stuff going on in animation mm-hmm. um, and a lot of experimental work. But I think my sense of the department was that, was that documentary was at the core of it all, which is still how I think about mm-hmm. making in general. That, that, cause, because I think documentary teaches maybe the most important lesson in filmmaking, which is that you don't control everything um, and that you're always... Any film you go to make, no matter what kind of film it is, um, you're going to, you, you have to bring ideas to it. You have to bring a plan, and then you also have to be ready for your ideas and plan to get blown up in your face. Um, and, uh, you know, in a very stark fashion, documentary teaches you that because the footage you've got is not always the footage you thought you were going to get. Um, and I think once you learn to grapple with that, that you, you apply that to everything you do as a filmmaker and anything you do creatively, I think. Um, mm-hmm. You have to learn that lesson. Well, that's very interesting because I, I think, and I'm no, I'm no expert, although I, I do consider myself a cinephile, but I'm not, a, I'm not an expert, say, like you are making, making work in that, in that medium. Um, it always occurred to me that there were some really amazing artists in film, and they could be actually have been fiction feature filmmakers, who have documentary roots? Is this not true? Can you think? I mean, I'm sure. Isn't there a tradition of that in cinema? Where, where so, so that the that the line between mm-hmm. fiction on the one hand and documentary has always been a sort of dubious line, right? I mean, yeah. Although, I mean, I think it's more. You know, there's a there's a commercial tradition of um, you're kind of on one side or the other. But I think you're absolutely right, and certainly Harvard attracts more of those people who who find that more porous. And and you know, Makovev and Ackerman are both like two extraordinary examples of. Um, People who uh, could 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 land on either side of that and still bring the exact same aesthetic to it. You know, I mean, you know, you know, an Ackerman movie is an Ackerman movie, whether it's a you know musical comedy or mm-hmm. um, experimental documentary. Her eye is very specific, and uh, so you know, yeah. I mean, there's there's kind of I think in in the states at least there tends to be a business tradition that mm-hmm. those don't mix. But yeah, I, I, there are plenty of filmmakers who. <laughs> That's funny. It's funny you mentioned that because when I saw results, by the way, there's a lot of misinformation about your films. Mm. Uh, people tend to exaggerate the differences between these films mm-hmm. too much, but they're stylistically like for me, results is the same as computer chess, mm-hmm. is the same as support the girls. And the, but anyhow, as an aside of that, I felt watching that that was kind of like when Shanta Arkhaman did the '80s or window mm-hmm. shopping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those musicals you talked about, that was also kind of like your musical, kind of like your about these these exercise buffs in this gym mm-hmm. that was uh, with the, with the electronic uh, sort of soundtrack, which I like very much in that almost eighty soundtrack and the, and the cutting. I mean, the thing to me about art that's really exciting is that our art really challenges these separations of style and genre, doesn't art? It's art making itself is sort of like a big, you know. Kind of a um, monkey wrench, saying, "Hey, who, who, are you, what are you, who are you going to label me, or what's in the sure. category, what's in the definition?" And I think artists sometimes are really oppressed by these um, these industry labels and categories. 
it's almost like, you know, if the film is good is what matters, you know, it doesn't have to, if it could be a Western, it could be a movie, a document of your classmates, but, it, but if it's moving and if it's intelligently made, that's what matters rather than the box or the, or the, the um, that you put it in or that, um, right, wouldn't you say? Uh, I certainly feel that way, although, you know, plenty of people, <laughs> plenty of people would disagree with us and have become very wealthy disagreeing with us. Um, I, it's just different, different modes of looking at these things. But yeah, I, I have trouble. I have the idea of kind of um, submitting to genre is always something I've, I've struggled with. I mean, I, I, I like, and you know, in, in results certainly was an example of um, going to a genre and, you know, treating it as a, as a playground. And Lord knows, you know, we can sit here all day and talk about, um, deep, deep genre movies that you and I both love. Yeah. Uh, but the idea that I'm going to go to the rule book and follow the rule book and people are going to yeah. take pleasure from an execution of the rule, you know, it's not, it's, it's not, it's not really my skill set. Um, I think there are people who, um, certainly please audiences that way. Well, it's interesting to hear you talk about what your skill set is or isn't because there, there are, it's funny because there are things in results that deliver those conventions, right? Wouldn't you say like results, Sure. Like I found results very entertaining. Colby Smol Smolders and um, mm -hmm. I forget the name. And the, the the actors in there are certainly engaging. There's a lot of comedy, and there's a lot of um, just a lot of very relatable com comedy in that. That's mm -hmm. totally like the things that you would see on, say, Lena Dunham's Girls. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of a, both in terms of style and appeal. But um, I guess not everybody sees that. They kind of they kind of say, "Oh, well, you didn't deliver here. Or you did. You know, it's very strange." So. So, yeah, it's kind of a... Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, genre is a, is a, is a harsh mistress that way, I think. It, it, was, it was funny to me, having made that movie back-to-back -back with, well, you know, not quite back-to-back, you know, I, I did computer chess, and then I pretty quickly... It's actually the quickest turnaround I've done, you know, two years between movies. Um, and computer chess was, you know, and just in the abstract, it was the least commercial thing I could imagine. I was kind of going out of my way to... Um, uh, do do nothing that the marketplace was asking for, uh, and do something that was kind of you know resolutely painfully um, avant garde to a degree. Although it's still you know I, I think it is still certainly a, a narrative that is not that hard to find your way into. But um, I did that, and then I did results, which was obviously playing on um, some very conventional things. I mean, first and foremost, that I was going to cast um, well known, well liked very gorgeous uh, actors to play fitness instructors and have them kiss each other at the end of the movie, you know, yeah. that, that, like these things that seemed, mm -hmm. um, you know, to a degree, maybe even a, a parody of uh, yeah. conventionality. But, um, but those movies, I think, were essentially received as equally bizarre. <laughs> you know? um, and I, I, I learned some lesson there that you don't, you can, you can kind of, you can borrow from convention and you can dress convention up, mm -hmm. but if you don't if you don't adhere strictly to convention, people people will notice, and the people who wanted strict convention um, will be annoyed by it, and you know even maybe more annoyed than they would be by computer chess, which they either kind of take or leave. Computer chess was certainly the, the most fun I've ever had marketing a movie because it was the only one that we couldn't misrepresent in the marketing. It was so weird. 
that all you could do is say, hey, this is weird, so, you know, well, you, you invite the weirdos to show up for it. I mean, computer, we have, we have done, chess, you could get a trailer that made it look sort of like a normal movie, and that's, I always feel <laughs> uncomfortable with that. Well, computer chess, I mean, I being part of that movie, I think is, I mean, I was so honored. That was a, that's just one of a kind is, is putting it mildly. I mean, it was a, I mean, actually, I read a, a piece on you that calls that your ma your masterpiece. I think one, I think I read something. I don't remember where I read that. I mean, I like all of your films. Uh, sure. Um, but I think Computer Chess, there is some, something special about it. I think the beginning, I, to, to begin with, I think the analog are using, did you use Betamax video recorders? Uh, no, it was, it was old Sony cameras, Sony even cameras. pre, pre Betamax. Um, yeah, so you, you, you know, the, you some of the Go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, the, uh, the Sony cameras, it was uh, oh, the ABC 3260, which was just, a, that was the precursor of the Portapack, which was the, kind of the first um, semi-commercially available consumer video camera in the late 60s, early 70s. But although it wasn't, it wasn't really for consumers, you know, a lot of schools had them, and, um, and it's a unique look. It, it didn't, it, part of what I loved about it, it was that that technology was such a, a blip. You know, there was only... Hmm. 10 years or less where that was really out and it was never commercially dominant so you know the images you see i think are very 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 particular to that era um and i like that i mean it was the best shortcut ever for um uh period filmmaking you know we did we did more to evoke that period just by turning that camera on that's right then then you know spending millions of dollars on production design or anything you would do in that sense I mean that that movie is really costume drama. I mean, I as, as you, I don't have to tell you, um, people think people think that movie is from 1980. They think it's like an actual computer chess convention that was documented, right? Some people, right? Is that not true? Uh, that they were fooled to that. Yeah, no, I, I've I've certainly heard plenty of people say that they when they started the movie they assumed it was documentary. I, it would be I, I, it's hard to imagine getting to the end of it and still feeling like you watched it. <laughs> yeah. Was, um, so, so, to, so to go back, so uh, not to get too far ahead, do you want to go back to Funny Haha -ha and talk about the genesis of this, these stylistic things, or what you were doing in terms of a relationship picture or movie mm -hmm. about about um, these young people in their twenties? What comes to mind working with Kate Dolemeyer, any of the actors, or yeah, what shooting, shooting that was like, or the conception, anything that comes to mind, whatever you know about making that wonderful thing. Uh, you know, well, I think recently it, it struck me whatever it was. Uh, I, I live in Austin, Texas now, and um, as you know, uh, there was a long period where um, I was living and working in Boston again. But I did twenty years. It was about twenty years ago that I first moved down to Austin, and I only lived here for about a year and change at that time. Um, but. Uh, Dal and I were one of my roommates at that time. I was I was just a year or two out of college, and I I knew I wanted to make films because it was the only thing I'd ever. It's still the only thing I've ever wanted to do, for better and or worse. Um, but uh, you know, and I and I gone to Harvard and I studied filmmaking and I'd done student work there. Um, and when I got out of school, I uh, you know I I. I I had to do whatever I could do to, to earn not much money. I did. I, my first job out of school was um, I teaching a high school film study class. I stumbled right into that, and I did a lot of temp work and the kind of stuff you see in Funny Haha, -ha, just um, bill paying stuff. But 
uh, during that time I was writing and I wrote, um, I don't know, two or three or four screenplays, which, um, you know, I think were not particularly good. Um, but I didn't, I, I couldn't quite imagine what it would take, what the leap would be to get from sitting sitting in my room trying to write these things to actually, I, I didn't know what it would be to make it or how to make it. Um, I had enough of a background, both from my schooling and also just from being, you know, watching indie movies. Mm-hmm. The idea of only making something and not, you know, not trying to go up to Hollywood and climb sort of ladder. Um, but uh, these, scri- these scripts I were writing at the time, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine devoting my life to making them because I knew that's what I knew it would take everything I had. Um, and then living in Austin, living with Kate as a roommate, um, and you know, she, she was and is one of the most charismatic people I've ever met. Mm-hmm. Um, and then certainly at that time too, you know, with all people were so drawn to her. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I had this notion that I, that I could write something for her to play the lead in. Mm-hmm. And if that, you know, if my hunch was right, then I would had this great trick, this great shortcut to, uh, to, to holding people's attention on screen, you know, which would be this very magnetic lead and somebody who, um, if I could build the right kind of part for her. I, I, I mean, you know, obviously I had a hunch. I did not know how good she would be because she wasn't a professional actor. Yeah. I think she, she turned up and, you know, she had done some small roles in Friends student films because she was a Harvard person too and we'd Mm -hmm. been together. So she had acted before but certainly not anything like this and and she's phenomenally good. You know what I mean? (laughs) Well, yeah, we we all agree. I mean, it's amazing. I'm sure you you hear a lot of people saying it's one of the great performances of an actress in in cinema of the early early, uh, 2000s. Um, And and it's somebody who's not, who's actually an animator, right? Who make her, 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 um, Profession is, I believe, is animation. Well, that's what she had been studying in school, yeah, and then she was at CalArts yeah. uh, doing experimental filmmaking. She works as an archivist now. Oh, excellent. Uh, See, yeah. that goes to, that's a major theme of my show, is that someone will will do a performance like she did in a film like that, but mm-hmm. they will archive film, they'll do, they'll do a cartoon, they'll, they'll save, save uh, celluloid. So it's, mm-hmm. all, it's all one, all the arts are one, and I, I, I'm very excited hearing about all these the fact that you're not putting people in boxes and putting people in them, which I don't like. So I'm trying to resist that as much as I can. So that, that's great. So she, she, um, gave this performance and then, and you, did you, but you didn't know that while you were shooting what you had in that sense or you did, or you had a sense or. Oh, I thought, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I I felt like it was going to work. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, funny, ha ha. Mm-hmm. Is there anything more you want to say about the other, the other misconception? Of course, I always like to clear up misconceptions and misperceptions mm-hmm. on my show. And one of them is this thing about writing versus improvisation. Mm-hmm. Your films are written. You're you're a writer. They're scripted. Yes, although you know I'm certainly not averse to throwing uh, improvisation and oddities on top of that. I'm I'm, I'm uh, and so I always struggled with that question, you know, because I think the question often comes in the form. Um, you know, how, how much is scripted and how much is improvised, like as if there's a kind of formula or percentage. And, um, I think, I tend to think of acting in general as 
improvisation. You know, even if um, even if you're doing Shakespeare or David Mamet or something where it's you know it's it's you're not you can't alter a word per se, but it it comes out differently every time. You know, it's supposed to, and you and you you're supposed to learn from it. You're supposed to be alive and listening in the moment. So um, whether or not there's any ad living per se going on, and there there certainly are moments. Um, in all my movies, and, and uh, you know, I'm sure more so in the early ones, uh, where 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 you know words come out of people's mouths that that perhaps are not precisely was on the page, but it always followed the structure of what was on the page. I've never gone into something without a pretty pretty clear and pretty nailed down sense of structure, and then from there. What happens happens, um, and that was one thing I liked about working with non-professional actors is that, and, and everyone's different, by the way, no matter their background. You know, you find some some non-professionals really do want to get the words exactly right, and some some professionals don't mind um, goofing off. Uh, huh. But um, so interesting. Yeah, but in in general, for sure, with with non-professionals, especially in that first movie, I mean, the real joy and great luck of that first movie. I think what what brings it to life is that nobody was precious about it. I think everybody was serious. Everybody was committed. Everybody was trying to do a good job. Mm-hmm. Um, but nobody was there to advance their career. Mm-hmm. Nobody was there... I'm not sure how to put this quite right, but but there's... I, I, never, I never felt like... Um, I think it was the right kind of respectfulness of the material, something which is to say it was not, nobody was overly respectful of it. We, we couldn't have been, we were all kids, you know, and we yeah. were all just... I mean, I, I guess... In, in There's something that happens when you get to a certain kind of professional level where, where, because it is the nature of a professional relationship, people treat you and the material very respectfully, which is nice, <laughs> but also not necessarily the, as, as creative as when you just really all feel like you're in a suit together. Hmm. It, yeah, if I, if I were going to evoke it from the outside as someone who's seen that film many times and mutual appreciation, I think part of it could be your writing, in your writing, because it's very hard to write as you do. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think, I think people fail to appreciate that because you, because you, because you, before you go into production, the subtleties between the people is written into the script and sort of executed in such a way Um that it actually unfolds in terms of the performances. Now, I don't know how you do that. That's your gift. But you do do that, and I, and I sort of feel like... Um, but, I, but I think part of it, what you're talking about is balance. Um, so you're saying mm-hmm. that funny ha. And then when we get to mutual appreciation, that's Brooklyn, right? And some of yes. the same people. So do you want to talk about your style unfolding and your practice uh, in terms of that or what comes to mind about that? or that along the yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, we, we were... I was still young yeah. <laughs> and hadn't lost that yet. Um, and I was eager to jump in again. I was eager to, you know, to, to, to maybe change up the formula a little bit. Uh, not that I, not that there was a formula, but um, in the first movie, you know, I had, I, I was, I was relying so heavily on, on Kate, you know, that I, that I had this, Person who I thought was charismatic, who I wanted to follow around in every scene of the movie, mm-hmm. um, and it was kind of. I think that was, you know, that was me trying to make a what I thought of as a as a French movie. Um, well, it is. 
I mean, I think, I mean, I, what, no, seriously. I mean, it's like, it's like some of Rivet. I'm mm. sure you hear this. It's actually more Rivet than Roman, mm. actually, which uh -huh. is, um, yeah, so oh. you succeeded in that. <laughs> but anyway, go ahead. I just want to throw that out there. That, yeah, yeah, well, I, I do remember, you know, when you kind of, in my pretentious film student way, I remember with the first one thinking that was my French movie in the, Second one thinking, okay, this is now I'm now making an Italian movie, which means okay. long party scenes. Yep. Um, and that was a lot of fun to do. And, and uh, you know, again, I was writing for a, uh, for a former roommate, for Justin Rice, who I lived with. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but, you know, a different, different kind of bag of trip, very different character and very different structure um, where – I was going to spend a lot of time with him, but I was going to open it up a little bit and have, you know, these, uh, this trio at the center of it. Um, it was still certainly about young people and the concerns of young people, but um, the focus of it felt different. Working in black and white felt different. It felt mm. great. Yeah. And I don't know. We were very lucky to get away with it again. Mm. What is it you thought you were getting away with in terms of the photography or the whole pro the whole? Oh, the whole thing. I mean, you know, to, to make make movies at all, and certainly to make movies fairly a ton. I mean, I've been very spoiled. Uh, I'm I'm in my forties now, and I'm six movies in. And of course, things have changed, and you know, there are, I I have more financial pressure in my daily life now. I have children, I have a mortgage, yeah. and these things. Um, but I've still always been in a position where my movies, you know, I've had, I've had final cut on six movies and there are very few filmmakers who you can say that. get, get final cut on one movie, let alone six. Yeah. That's, I'm happy for you actually that that's been the case. I mean, if you're going to talk about your most support, the girls again, feels like your early work. It really, mm. really does. Mm. I mean, I, 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 feel, I get frustrated with critics that don't see the commonality. So you're staying true uh, to your vision. Um, even though, even though there are different, the subject matter, of course, is different. It's a, it's this bar, sports bar, with uh, uh, girls that work there, clad a certain way and dress a certain way, and sort of it's a certain environment of the suburbs. Those are differences, but underneath those um, differences, there's the commonality, the human, there's a human heart commonality. Mm. I think, I think, um, in terms of how you approach the material, but, but. Um, so on mutual appreciation, so you 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 finish that, and then what do you feel about the reception of that versus funny haha? Do you feel that this is starting to take off and people are starting to respond to what you're doing at that time? Or uh, well, you know, opening weekend felt exciting, um, but it, funny haha had had such a long, strange arc. Um, we finished that movie in 2002, and I remember clearly. Uh, you know, at the time, it was already archaic, but um, the, the first finished version of that was a three reels of a 60-millimeter print, which was already, by 2002, not that easy to get shown anywhere, you know. Um, but uh, but I remember holding it in my hands. Uh, three reels of 16, you can kind of clutch it to your chest. Yeah. And I remember holding it and thinking... What now? You know, I hadn't I hadn't planned past making the movie. Everything I'd had for uh, the years that it took to do that was was in finishing the movie, and there was really no energy, no thought had gone into how to get it screened. Um, and so I, you know, I started looking up 
film festivals and you know submitting pretty much willy nilly to wherever and getting rejected from everywhere. Hmm. And there were about six months where I didn't I didn't know if the movie would ever be seen. Um, and then that dam kind of broke. And in fact, it was uh, Gerald Perry in Boston who programmed the first ever public screening at Coolidge Corner. Yeah. Um, and you know we started to go to a few regional film festivals from there and. It just had this weird kind of, um, it kept getting void along every time I thought it was over. Uh, you know, we, I think after we played three regional festivals, I thought, well, that was nice. You know, that's, that's probably it. This movie's probably dead. Um, but then we'd go to another one, and then we got, we got, we'd get a good review somewhere. We, you know, we played the Los Angeles, what was it called? It was called the, I'm blanking on this. It was, oh. it was the Indie Film Festival in L.A. That's right. Now, I'm forgetting the name of it now. Maybe it was just Los Angeles Independent Film Festival, but yeah. um, they uh, and we got a good review in Variety, and so then that oh yeah, that'll you know then then you get the Hollywood people yeah I don't know you know asking you for your asking you for a cassette of your movie. This That's is fantastic. our cassette for VHS tapes. And then we won an award. We won a thing at the Independent Spirit Awards, and so it kept kind of kept having a little bit of life in it. And in 2005, three years after we finished it, um, a, uh, a, a, you know, independent, not somebody who was not in the movie business, but who had a little bit of money to throw around and wanted to see the film released, backed us in self-distributing it. Um, so we had, we had an investor who wanted to help us do that. We, we put it in theaters ourselves. Um, so, you know, that film was still kind of chugging along while I was making Mutual Appreciation. Yeah. Um, so you, so it's good to have the chemistry of these two different films working, in a way, supporting each other, right? So so what, what you're saying is in a, the fact that there was somewhat of a lengthy, I won't say torturous, but lengthy kind of volatile um, post-production history, funny ha-ha, turned out to be a good thing because it actually, am I right, it actually helped Mutual Appreciation in a way, energy-wise? I don't know. No, I think you're right, and it gave the illusion that I was prolific, you know. Um, and uh, so, yeah, for sure, it's, it, 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 you know, yeah, there was more of an impression that I guess it was easier to get people's attention when, when they knew there were two films out there. And when and when Mutual Appreciation opened in New York, we 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 actually did, you know, by our standards, well. I remember we had, you know big line on uh, Friday night in New York City and we didn't <laughs> we didn't necessarily expect that of well, course you know, none, yeah. none of these things made like real money um, but uh, but it was nice to feel like we were big shots for a weekend so you weren't expecting the crowds for mutual appreciation that was becoming this phenomenon and no but we got we got good reviews and people turned up that opening weekend it was it was exciting and so, what comes to mind after that? So, we after mutual appreciation, then what uh, uh, what comes into your consciousness about the aftermath of that, and what happens uh, next? Uh, those it's hard to reconstruct. It was, it was then, it, you know, then then the illusion of prolificness uh, died, died off. I think then it then it, um, it took a while to get the next one together, but. Um, I was, and in part because I, you know, so much time was going into the release of these movies, and um, you know that we were that we did self-distribute the first two. So for all the all the dreams I'd had as a as a kid of wanting to make movies, wanting to, you know, I, I dreamed of writing and directing and even acting, but uh, but never of distributing. 
but then, um, you know, I, I, I wanted to kind of take one more, one more whack at this kind of filmmaking. Um, and uh, I was dreaming of this movie for the, for the Hatcher sisters, for Maggie and Tilly Hatcher. These whacks. Yes. Um, and gradually kind of found our way to that. You know, we ended up shooting that in 2007. It took, we didn't premiere until 2009 because I was a slow editor. Hmm. Um, and that ended up certainly changing the course of my life because we, we shot that in Austin, Texas. I thought I would... So I returned to Austin where I lived years earlier when I was writing Funny Haha. And I thought I would just be here for a few months making the movie. Um, but much to my surprise, I started dating my wife. And so that was a good excuse to, to move back. So I, you know, a- after shooting the movie, I came back to Boston for a few months, but then, um, but then ended up moving back here to be with Karen and finished editing here. And we premiered it. We premiered it here. Uh, oh, that's not true. We premiered it in Berlin, but then... Mm-hmm. The following month at South by Southwest in 2009. And in Beeswax, actually, you had uh, some piano music of mine, a trio yeah. thing, which I which I really like the way you... That's another thing is that you use the, what they call the non-diegetic or diegetic uh, mm-hmm. uh, music, just music that's in the story rather than commentary yeah. music, which I actually been... That's actually exciting. But, um, but so you're saying Beeswax was even more... had more appeal than mutual appreciation, that that was, that was kind of a positive... More appeal? Well, yeah. positive in terms of its reception, that it was... The- oh, no, I wouldn't say that. I actually think um, <laughs> Beeswax was, I still think probably, of all the things I've done, probably the least the least seen and the least... Really? Um, yeah, well, certainly box office, you know, which doesn't is no real indicator, but um, I think at that point, we, we were kind of like, well, A, it's just a strange, quiet movie. I, I saw it again. This We actually did a 10th anniversary screening here in Austin and we got you know, the Hatcher sisters came for it and Alice Kaprowski came for it and it was really really a delight to see those people and then I watched the movie um, with that group mm-hmm. for first time in a while and um, it was it was really exciting and sweet to watch it but also of course I was struck by how strange it is you know it was very, it was it was clear to me that why it wasn't a uh, commercial hit um, yeah, no, but I've always I've always had the impression that that was uh, that one kind of got lost in the shuffle, and and critically too, I think it was at the time where you know in two thousand seven there was a lot of press around this idea of quote unquote mumblecore. So this you know kind of after mutual appreciation came out, then really this notion took hold in the media um, to you know the small 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 niche of media that follows or cares about these things, um, that, uh, that there was a movement going on and then you get all the stuff that goes with that, like, you know, and then you get backlash and blah, blah, blah. Mm. Um, and so I don't think that was great for beeswax. I think most of the press that came out around beeswax was kind of all through the prism of, um, you know, is this mumblecore, is mumblecore dead, is mumblecore stupid, <laughs> whatever, whatever that was. And, I didn't really get so I, I think that made it a little harder for people to that's, see the that's interesting. That's really interesting because uh, just 20 minutes ago I was decrying categories rather than labels, and here you mentioned this word. Um, so this, this, so you're saying that that played a role. You're saying that that wasn't only positive. It was a it was a well it was a kind of a, what would you say that it kind of um, 
Well, you know, it's a, I mean, as anybody who's ever been in, lumped in those categories, you know, it's, it's a blessing and a curse. It's, I mean, it's, it's nice. Yeah. It's nice that it focuses press attention in a certain way, but then you also get, you know, if you have to, if you have to ride a wave of a fad, then, then that, hmm. that crashes at some point. It's not, and for me, the movie was never about, I mean, you know, the, the last thing I would ever do is say, let me, let me cash in on the mumblecore fad. That was, that had nothing to do with my thought process, uh, ever. Um, I don't mean to blame, uh, media per se for that movie not getting more attention. I think, I, I do think it's a very strange movie and a very quiet movie and, you know, nothing that would be, uh, likely to be a box office smash whenever you released it. Um, but I do love the movie a lot, and you know, there's some part of me I think that that will always suspect that it's um, came together as well as anything I'll ever do. Yeah, I have to agree with that because I rewatched it a couple of days ago, actually, and um, I was I was really struck by um, how I guess how well the movie's held up, mm-hmm. and also how influential it is. I mean, you must. I mean, I really I see again. A lot of people, you say it may not have this been big, big success, but I think that that film maybe inspired people or had influence. I think, don't you? And I, 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 I wouldn't know. You wouldn't know. Yeah, <laughs> it seems to be it has. Mm. But um, uh, but influence. So, so that so how do we this this road this maybe rocky road from uh, beeswax to computer chess? Is that the next? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think with Beeswax, I kind of felt I, you know certainly I was a little stung by uh, by the fact that, <laughs> that there was you know fewer fewer eyeballs on it and and um, a little less critical reception for whatever that was and and we spent more money on it you know not again by movie standards still a pittance yeah. um, but I did kind of feel like we'd I wasn't sure where else, it, and part of me would have been happy if I spent the rest of my life making little um, 16 millimeter character stories with uh, with non-professional actors. I, that that would not have been a, a bad fate for me, but I did worry about mm-hmm. uh, because it was never meant to be sustainable, and so it, it wasn't sustainable. Um, I think. And also, I was undergoing these, you know, extraordinary changes in my personal life at that time. Uh, uh, you know, a couple months after Beeswax premiered, I got married. A mm-hmm. uh, couple months after that, uh, my wife was pregnant, and um, a lot was was moving quickly. I think I, I wrote a screenplay at that time, which was intended to be, you know, a that that would have been my first uh, attempt to go do something with professional actors on a slightly larger financial scale. Um, okay, what 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 tr- was that? A, what was that? Project well, it, it it remains it remains unmade. Um, uh-huh. But it was, uh, and it's, it's I I you know I still I've I've rewritten it a bunch of times, and I still pull it out and look at it and think about it sometimes and. Um, it's a script I like a lot and maybe I'll get a chance someday to do some version of it. Um, but, uh, it was a thing about, uh, teenagers as a kind of a teenage revolt and they, uh, they're in a, they're in a summer class and, oh wow, 
and there's a there's a little rebellion, but it's about it's it's kind of equally about the teenagers and their uh, instructors trying to hold this thing together. It was a little bit of a um, kind of you know a political story about idealism versus pragmatism, and, but oh. uh, it was it, it was a script I liked a lot and I put a lot into, but um, and we came. It felt for a moment that we came close. You know, I, I there was a, a you know famous movie star, and I and I went to this guy's house, and mm-hmm. uh, he, he seemed like he wanted to do the movie, um, and uh, and that was exciting. And we started to turn gears to try to do that, and then a few weeks later, he dropped out, and then and then you know the kind of the project fell apart as these things do. And we tried a couple more times. You know, then there was another actor later who was going to do it, and that. It was. It's a deviously hard project to pull off, in part because there are so many um, young people in it. And so you're you're saying that one of the difficult things about this project is the amount of characters in the script. Is it? Is that? What yeah, you're, it's a huge ensemble piece, ensemble and you piece. know, and, and a lot of that ensemble is you know, 14, 15, 16, 17 year olds. And so one thing that I think always tripped us up on it is that the way that big movies are made. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole lot of like you wait and wait and wait for years and then the money falls out of the sky and then you have, you know, three weeks to pull everything together. That's right. uh, and, uh, and that never really going to work for a movie where I needed to go find all these kids and they had to be great. You know, I, I couldn't quite, that, that was something that got us in trouble time and again as we tried to pull the movie together. It was like we couldn't, there was no, no way to approach it on that schedule of, we're going to wait until the big star says yes, and then we're going to have three weeks to do everything. Um, uh, we, we needed more lead time. So anyway, um, so that didn't happen, but at, at, there was a certain point in 2010, I think, when my, or maybe 11, my, my son was born in 2010, and there I was at home with a baby, um, and I could... I had a real anxiety about whether or not I had a future as a filmmaker. And I could imagine wow. now the scenario in which I never made another film. Wow. Uh, because life had changed. I had responsibilities. And, sure. uh, you know, and, and everything I had done in the past was so based on not having responsibilities. Um, I always thought, I always felt, you know, to some degree, still feel like the, the greatest, I think most, because movies are so expensive and so time-consuming and so difficult to make, um, most sane people put sustainability at the top of their priority list. You know, you, 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 don't, you don't make a movie unless you believe it has a good shot at making money back or at least making you enough money to go on to the next one. And I always put that at the bottom of my priority list because I felt like it freed me up to do a lot of other things, to make movies that were not going to get made any other way. And so, you know, once I started to worry about sustainability, yeah, it was, it was very easy to imagine not, not, films. you know, I, I don't know what I would do instead because I'm not really qualified to do anything else. Well, uh, I would imagine you would write scripts for other people or no? Were you, I mean, I could see. Well, yeah, I've, I've done a little bit of that um, and I love doing that. Um, but it's also, that's not something to really make a full-time, to make a reliable career of that, you know, I would have to do a lot more hustling than I do. So I've been very lucky to have had a handful of those jobs kind of fall in my lap. Um, and I love them and I need more of them. May I, may I ask what some of the script writing you've done? What, what sorts of 
pictures or projects or TV or anything? What comes to mind? Uh, uh, I wrote, I wrote, well, my, my first my first Hollywood job was I, I worked for um, Scott Rudin, who you know has a real history of going and finding, find, you know, kind of getting a farm team together, going out and finding young people who you know maybe he'll want to work with. He thinks ahead 10, 20 years in the future. Wow. Uh, so he, he hired me to adapt uh, a book called Indecision by a guy named Ben Kunkel. That's I've read that. Uh, yeah, uh, it's a really fun book, and it was a really you know at the, at the time it came out, it was. Certainly a well well received, well publicized book, um, and so that was a great education. Writing a bunch of drafts of that for Scott. Um, uh, of course, the movie never got made, um, but uh, but I was thrilled to get paid for working on it. And uh, I, I later, I, a buddy and I wrote a romantic comedy for Scott that never got made. Wow! I wrote a pilot for HBO. Um, oh. And most recently, the the, 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 uh, the only Hollywood thing I've done that actually has gotten made was I just, uh, last year or a year and a half ago, was working for Disney, mm-hmm. uh, um, their Lady and the Tramp reboot, which was certainly Excellent. an interesting experience. <laughs> Do you want to say more about that? Because that is, uh, to, to, if you just, if you did like a surface glance, you would, that would be, that would strike you as being contrary or different to other things you've done, um, either real or apparent difference. So t- t- what comes to mind when you... About doing that and be working on an old an old story like that for a yes. big company like Disney, um, sure. I imagine that could have its have its um, have its have its plus side. It could have its have its uh, opportunities or challenges artistically or at least interest. So, what comes to mind about that? Or oh, it was great fun, great and incredible luck. Really, you know, there was a uh, producer, a guy named Brigham Taylor, who has spent most of his career at Disney. Hmm. Um, who's a really smart, interesting guy. He's also, you know, luckily for me, he has this uh, kind of weird strain of um, indie taste, you know, he's, and he's the guy who brought Alex Ross Perry into the Disney fold to write this book. And so I had a breakfast meeting with him, and we were chatting about, you know, what what, what he was doing, what I was doing, and what was out there. What uh, You know, I was certainly well aware that Disney was, remaking everything they'd ever done. Um, and, but, but I assumed that most of those properties were taken, um, and most of them were. But Brigham mentioned that Lady and Tramp was still out there and it was something that, that he was interested in doing. And that certainly struck a chord with me because I think of all the, and I'm not a Disney expert at all, mm-hmm. um, but it is kind of unique amongst the Disney classics. Um, in as much as, you know, perversely, it's, it's about dogs, but it, I think it's a much more human story than, than most. You know, most of their stories are um, magical fairyland things, and this one is very earthbound. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, basically a romantic comedy. It was something that I felt like I kind of knew my way around. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's and very character-based. And so I went and watched the original with my kids, and... Um, took some notes and had some ideas and just started kicking things around with Brigham and you know eventually um, was lucky enough to and I never would have gotten in the door without him but you know we went in and we pitched the uh, the Disney brass and uh, I got I got hired to write a bunch of drafts them. now you know after that of course then they brought in other writers and uh, this is the way that those kind of movies are made um, so I don't 
I haven't seen the finished movie yet. I know that you know a, a, a fair bit was was rewritten since I last had my hands on it. But uh, I'm very curious to see how it turns out. When are you going to look at that? Oh, I assume when everybody else does it, it will be. Uh, it's one of the things they're going to launch their streaming service with. Disney's doing will have its own streaming service. Uh, they launch in November, and this will be one of their flagship titles. Well, I'm going to watch it for sure. Sure. Um, so going back then again to computer chess, because that you know even though there's there's a getting the thread there, so going. Uh, yeah. Well, I was afraid I would never make another movie because I had written this thing that was, um, you know, that 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 the teenagers project that we would have needed millions of dollars for, and, um, and because I, I had just had this panic sense that if I don't make something right now, I'll never make anything again. Yep. But I did have computer chess had been a fantasy in the back of my head for for years, mm-hmm. um, and it, it seemed like you know the most impossible project I could imagine, the, the weirdest thing I could think of. And maybe a year or two before that, I'd been having breakfast with a friend, uh, the filmmaker Jeff Nichols, uh, who who, um, who did Shotgun Stories and Mud and oh yeah, uh, uh, who he lives in Austin and he's you know a good, great guy and very energetic guy. And so I think we had been talking about impossible projects, or, you know, things we dreamed of doing that we knew we could never get away with. And I mentioned this computer chess idea to him, and he basically dared me to write a treatment. Um, so I did. I wrote like an eight-page treatment, and you know, I think I sent it to Jeff, and I, I didn't think about it again until until 2011, when I was when I thought, oh my god, I need to make something. Let me make this. Um, and it was a crazy. I mean, you know, I referred to Funny Haha before as leaping off the cliff, and this was just. I don't know. This felt. This was leaping off several clips. This, well, this, was, is, this uh, is more of a quantum. I don't know yeah. what you would call. I'm yeah, not, yeah you're right. it's like it's like yeah, leaping off the planet. You know, I mean, it. it uh, I mean, for those that haven't seen, I, again, one of the things, great things about doing these shows is hopefully people come on if they haven't, if by some weird fluke of, cult, you know, they haven't seen Computer Chess, maybe they'll see it. Mm-hmm. But go 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 so. The leaping off the planet. So, yeah. Well, I had I, you know I called up a couple producers um, and basically said to them, "I've got I've got an eight page screenplay. I don't have a screenplay. It's the only thing I've done that I haven't you know written a full screenplay for. Although I had a very detailed treatment, um, and then the and the treatment got more and more flushed out in pre production. But I said, you know, I've got an eight page treatment, no screenplay. Um, I want to shoot this on." You know, kind of experimental technology that we're going to have to figure out how to do it. Uh, I want to use these old cameras, um, and I don't have anybody cast, and I don't have any money, and it's a huge ensemble, and it's a period piece, and it's on a kind of arcane subject matter that I don't really know anything about. <laughs> um, and uh, and and we start shooting in three months, and are you in or out? And uh, luckily for me. Uh, Houston King and Alex Lipschultz, who produced the movie, said, okay, sure, we're in, um, and came to Austin. We just started pulling everything together. But it's the kind of thing where, you know, if we'd, if we'd had a moment to think about it, we couldn't have done it. It was, it was there's, both practically and aesthetically, there's, there's no reason that movie should have worked. Um, we, just, we just ran, and, uh, you know, until it was too late to stop. Well, and in that sense, it did work. So something about that, the energy of what you just talked about made the film, in it, right? Yeah, that's right. 
I mean, I, I have to say one of my great uh, regrets is not being on the set of that. I was supposed to come to Austin and be in the film, wasn't I? Or at least play something mythical. Uh, I'm sure we approached you about it. Yeah, I mean, you understand that that was that when the film was in production is when my father died. Uh, and my, my father's funeral. So there's, it's funny how life is. So that's that's just to clear all the, after all these years. That's that's the reason for my inability uh -huh. to go to Austin. Um, but I would have loved to have done that. Well, your, your music is in there, and I'm sure yeah, your spirit is. My spirit certainly is. So, um, just the characters of that film, just all the actors in this convention, talk about evoking this 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 motel in 1980, and these people, and it's just uh, and this, there's even an encounter session. You have like a, a, a kind mm -hmm. of an S type group, yeah, right, in the film that's meeting and doing relationship. Counseling, and you even have them approach this poor, poor kid, mm -hmm. right, in a very awkward circumstance. I mean, all of that. Talk about what comes to mind about uh, those parts of the film, or that anything. It's hard to reconstruct. I think you know. I think every every filmmaker, every artist. I think to you read so many people talking about their process and feeling like you know, well, I was just a, I was just a conduit. It just. It was out there, and I, you know, I just tried to transcribe it, and and, um, and I always feel that way. And I think particularly with this movie, because I, one question I would get asked over and over again as we travel with it, do Q and A's, people would say, well, "Where did this come from?" And I can, you know, I can tell you kind of bits and pieces of, you know, where what first got me thinking about the cameras, or what first got me thinking about computer chess as a subject matter. But to be honest, I, I don't, I don't really remember <laughs> where where the whole thing came from. I, you know, I know that. Um, there had been that moment when, when Jeff had challenged me to write the treatment. Mm -hmm. I don't really remember sitting down and writing that, or, or what what I was thinking, or how that came out. Um, and that was what we were chasing most of the time was just just trying to flesh out and figure out that eight page treatment. Um, as far as you know, we needed a perfect cast. We needed perfect locations. We needed. Um, Incredibly talented uh, production design and costume folks, and all those, all, all of that just appeared um, magically, hmm. which is what you know what always has to happen with a movie. It just uh, this seemed like a pretty extreme case of um, the right elements being there at the right time. So you say this is a, a case of ultra magic, or ultra, ultra magic, there you ultra go. magic for computer chess. Mm -hmm. Now, so you're you're in post production, and the film obviously has a reception. Um, what's the reception of this film uh, after the uh, beeswax and other things? What was the um, talk about a little bit about that? Because I imagine that is its own story or its own. Uh, it was exciting, you know. As I say, we, we we took it to Sundance. It was my first time ever going to Sundance, um, and you know, I felt like we had buzz, whatever that is. Um, uh, and I, you know, I was, I was very grateful that I think it was received in the in the spirit that we intended it. You know, that, that we set out to make something unique. And in fact, I was thinking about this the other day because somebody had said something to me about how unique the movie was, and um, that was really that was really very much part of its design. You know, it was designed to be unrepeatable. <laughs> um, and, I, and I could have told you. A month before we shot it, that um, I would never make anything like it again, and uh, you know, and maybe no one would. It was just—it was just meant to be this uh, 
thing that, that appeared from the ether and then and then vanished back into the ether. Um, and for people to see that and feel that was was pretty exciting. Yeah, it's it's interesting because the, the film is very specific. Mm-hmm. Um, specific to the year in which it's set and everything from the clothes and the haircuts and these these um, computer mavens, these sort of they're kind of geniuses. These people at this convention are kind of unusual mm-hmm. people. I mean, they're people that certainly in the, the real world real world made an enormous historical impact on today. If you think mm-hmm. about it, so the kinds of the people that are at this convention are people that had you know maybe they didn't know it, but you know they were they were ahead of the curve and they were kind of creating the future to a large extent. But with all that specificity, interestingly enough, computer chess is going to last. There's something um, actually, dare I say, eternal for all that. And like, maybe because of that, right? So it's, I, I can imagine people 20 years from now like, liking computer chess. Right? It's interesting. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. There's so much we don't know about 20 years That's from now. That's true. Or, or 10 years from now, or 8 years from now. Mm-hmm. But, right. But um, it's that specificity maybe worked out. Worked out in the... Your favor, the film's favor. Well, and as you point out, I mean, it is it is so much. It was something that, in its conception, when I was when I was sitting down and writing that treatment, I don't think any part of me was thinking about relevance or topicality. And it was really only as we got deeper, and maybe as we were shooting, that it was starting to dawn on me that um, that I was making something that that you know was going to have a certain degree of topicality and 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 you know zeitgeistiness i mean i you know i, I tend to fear the zeitgeist yeah um i kind of rather stay away from it to be honest and and for whatever reason you know w- once in a while i kind of um happen to stumble toward it which is which is exciting and scary because it's you know it's 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 bigger than you i always just want to focus on the work and i want to focus on what excites me about the work and hope it will be received in that sense. And, you know, in a, in a way it's a very different movie in a very different situation, but, um, support the girls also the has, the same, has the same fate, right? Because people are seizing on the film, I guess for their own political, um, yeah. purposes. And, and that, in one hand that's, you're saying, well, that's a good thing because people are seeing the movie and excited about it. But I guess you're saying on the other hand, it was very much for you an aesthetic thing. You're trying to make this film about, the, about these people's lives. And that's what's important to you, these people's lives, and rather than... Uh, yeah, well, you hope, you hope it will be relevant, or you, know, you hope it will be a worthwhile piece of work, no matter what today's headline is. Um, and Support the Girls was just you know, a very particular, very strange journey from writing something that at the time I was writing, I thought would be... Um, I, I mean, I, I sat and I worried that it, would be, that, it would, that it would seem irrelevant to people, because I was just writing about these highway-side restaurants that nobody... Um, pays much attention to unless mm-hmm. unless you're a regular, um, and then to go from that to by the time the movie is premiering, it's like I almost worry that oh, now it's like too hot, you know, too 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 topical, and we're going to get in trouble for that um, because of such incredible seismic changes in the culture over the course of those few years. Yeah, uh, that was a that was a particular experience. But again, you know, very very lucky to feel like ultimately. Um, for the most part, the film was certainly received in, in the spirit we intended. Well, on that subject, um, if if indeed, do you mind talking uh, uh, with uh, the audience of this show about any possible differences in working with what you would call a non-professional actor, like someone mm-hmm. who is a roommate versus a Regina Hall, or you know, a very uh, sure. or a guy guy. Uh, peer, I mean, is it? I'm guessing there's probably some similarities underneath that. 
amidst the differences of uh, but but you but leave, it's up to you what uh, what comes to mind when you think about that question or that. Yeah, well, it's all you know, it's all human beings, and they're all and they're all doing the same job. So in that, yeah, of course, there's um, a lot of it's not that different. But I think mostly, I think the simplest way I can, or that I break it down for myself, is that um, with with non professionals, and, and I would point out too that all the non professionals I work with, while um, you know they don't have long resumes as actors, they're all they're all really talented, really good natural actors. They're all really good at acting, which is why right. they're in the movie. That's right. Um, so it's not, it's not, you know, I can't do it with just anybody off the street. Um, of course, yeah. But, um, but essentially, those are, those are people who come in with, with a lot of talent and not a lot of craft and not a lot of presupposition. So, so we kind of, you know, we start in some degree of chaos um, or maybe sometimes they don't know what I want or they don't know what they should be doing or they don't know what's, you know, what's, how you're supposed to act in a movie because they've never done it before. And then, but, it, but their instincts are good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we start from there and I, it's my job maybe to impose just enough order that the movie comes to life, you know, that I, that I, I, I have my structure, I have what I, what I need to get across, I have what I'm interested in and I can nudge just enough in that direction that is the right the right kind of chaos, and for me that's very exciting because uh, you know the the right kind of chaos is that's my that's my sweet spot that's my favorite stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas with professionals, I, I realized I kind of had to learn to go somewhat in the opposite direction. Um, people like uh, you know Guy Pearce, Cody Smulders, Kevin Corrigan, who are results, Regina Hall, who's in Support the Girls, so many great actors in Support the Girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are people who have been, you know, all, all those people I just mentioned have been doing this for decades and worked a lot. Yeah. Um, they all have very different styles. You know, no two, no two are the same. No two professionals are the same. No two non-professionals are the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so always there's that aspect of it, of just trying to learn, learn your way around the person and what's, how you can be most useful to them. Um, but uh, there is... I think a tendency of professionals learn over time to to be professional, which it means to some to show up very prepared, um, sometimes almost bulletproof, you know. Because hmm. I think if you if you work that much, at some point at some point any of those actors have probably had the experience of showing up to a set that was, you know, to whatever degree disorganized or, you know, or maybe the director's not paying attention or maybe the director's asleep or drunk or what, you know, you never know. Um, and they still have to stand up there and deliver something really solid. So they're all in the habit of being really solid, really, really strong, really good. And that's, that's nice for me. Um, then my, then my fear is, oh no, but what if there's, I don't. I don't want it bulletproof. You know, I want. I want to wear some of that down. I want some vulnerability. Um, I want to allow the opportunity for mistakes because mistakes are often, you know, where some of the most interesting things creep in. Um, so I, you know, I, I think I realized with professionals, I kind of had to go the opposite direction that I was used to. Instead of instead of putting just a little bit of order uh, onto the chaos, I was kind of trying to do the opposite. I was trying to get just a little bit of chaos back into the order because they, they have no trouble bringing order. Yeah, so it's an order 
they're, they're, you said they're bulletproof and they're coming in because of their training, right, as actors in terms of the craft. Well, I think, and, and I don't, uh, you know, I, I realize that's, maybe that's not any more insulting than I mean it to. It's not, I think that has to be in their repertoire. They have to, they, they have, they've all learned to be bulletproof. It doesn't mean they don't have access to vulnerability. I think every good actor does. And in fact, that was maybe the biggest lesson I learned on results. I think, you know, of course I was intimidated by um, all these people who have so much more experience than I do. Um, and I think part of me thought, well, this will be this will be different because there'll you know there'll be no insecurities at all. And then I quickly realized that you know of course actors are nothing but insecurities. You know that, that <laughs> yeah. no matter no matter how long you've been doing it, no matter how good you are at it, um, I think you, you you have to retain those insecurities. And in fact, that's also that's kind of the method. You know, that's sort of what actors and directors do together. Is actors show up regardless of their level of experience with, with their insecurities and they present those to the director and then in working through those together, that's, that's how a performance is, is born. So that was unchanged. You know, that was the same as working with non-professionals. Yeah. That's, I guess that's when I mentioned similarities, I guess you express much better than I, I could. Um, in your words, what I was kind of trying to um, drive at when I intuited it was the case. Mm. Um, and that could be just um, connected to, to your role as being a direct writer director. That when you, if somebody would ask you, Andre, Andrew, what are you doing as a director? You could almost answer that that you're sort of um, the conduit for that to happen, and that you're the person that knows how to get the kind of get those results or get those um, things to happen on a set in kind of a living present. Yeah, it's a very weird job. I mean, it's, yeah. it's directors. If you if you go to a movie set, you know you're going to see, depending on what the size of the production, you know you might see a dozen people, or you might see hundreds of people, um, all kind of scurrying around, and, and all all of those people have a very particular thing they're doing and a very particular skill, except the director who kind of does nothing. You know, the director the director is just there to um, chat with everybody else. And uh, but you know ultimately somehow that if it's if it's working um, you you need that person to to give that the the thing it's it's person it's a very mysterious process it's always because I always feel intimidated on set because uh, everybody else is so good at their jobs and I don't really have a job except <laughs> chatting chatting with everybody else. And that's so you're saying that's the job, the chatting with the people might be yeah, at least part yeah. of the job. Yeah. Just, just setting setting a tone or whatever that is. Um, it's having it's trying to hold the big picture in your head. Um, well holding the big picture in your head is what the is what you're doing. That's what the characters in your film Computer Chess are good at, right? The chess is about holding that's interesting. So you wrote a film, there's a connection there, because I think people that people that are chess players, that's what they do. Sure. Although, you know, none of those characters, well, with maybe with the exception of the Jerry Perry character, most of those characters are not actually chess players. They're programmers. Okay. Um, so they're, they're dismantling chess, you know. <laughs> well, they're, they're dismantling to see, see what makes up some, what makes something up, right? So they're, they're, they're which is maybe connected. I don't know. We, we mm -hmm. didn't talk enough about movies that you love. I mean, either in the past or now, because I, I re recognize you were watching movies while at Harvard and younger 
And I know that you're on record as saying Rocky Three is your is your favorite Rocky, or I don't know. We could talk. So uh, no, it's not my favorite, but it's the one that that was my gateway drug. That was, I think, you know, I was I saw that when I was young enough to um that that was the first one I saw, and then it took me a moment to kind of understand that three meant that there were two others. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but yeah, no, the, the certainly the Rocky movies are. are have been huge for me, and I think about them all the time, and talk about them all the time, and uh, maybe a little too addicted to them. Well, let's talk a little bit about those films, or what what you take from them, because they're wonderful films. I know, I, I know, I, I try to watch the first one every few years. Mm-hmm. It's so well written and so well acted. Mm-hmm. Um, what comes to mind immediately when you think about those films, or what they mean to you, or what the either it could be anything, it could be acting, it could be plot, or it could be. Um, Thematic things are concerned. Just you know, you can riff on rock, the Rocky films. Um, just for a minute. Uh, well, the, you know, they're fascinating. It's it's fascinating. The, the scale and the scope of it is. I mean, it's unbelievable that there are eight of those now. Hmm. And uh, you know, I think I, I've not too tongue in cheek, but I've, I've I've compared them before to the to the Truffaut Antoine Dunel movies. Yeah. Uh, it's rare, if not unheard of, that you get a kind of uh, blockbuster franchise that that really is just following a guy through the through the course of his life. You know, I don't think, if I'm not mistaken, that you, there's not a single gun ever in a Rocky movie. That's right. Um, there's certainly not a spaceship, and usually, <laughs> you know, any franchise that goes eight movies, I, I cannot think of another one that has that doesn't have a gun or a spaceship. Um, so you're so, saying the absence of those two. Two objects makes it close to the Truffaut done well. Yeah, you're right about that. It is kind of the same. It is well, the same I mean, thing, really. They're, they're, they're very different, but you know. Well, but, uh, yeah, but I mean, yeah. But Dwanell is, you know, you, and and you start with Dwanell as a as a kid, of course. But um, you you follow him through his life, and he and he is always, and the story of his life is told through um, the story as as any. You know, Frenchmen would would do. It's it's always about his encounters with uh, these these knockout women. Um, whereas uh, you know, Rocky is <laughs> Rocky's American, and so it's kind of all about his all about his career. Yeah, uh, yeah. And all about his failure to retire. I mean, that's a fascinating aspect of it to me as well. It is, and and you kind of over the course of eight movies, you sort of tease this out where it is this weird epic tale of a. Somebody who's addicted to his career. They're, they're, Mickey is telling Rocky to retire mm-hmm. in Rocky One, mm-hmm. um, and it's all about a guy who kind of can't let go and keep going. And 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 um, you know, and then ultimately there's this weird shadow story too across the series, where Rocky is not always the best parent. You know, he's this he's he's a he's a hero, um, and uh, and he's he's this. You know, great, incredibly pure figure um, who 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 always triumphs morally or otherwise. But uh, but then over the course of the thing, has this very strained relationship with his son, and never really figures out how to parent. I, I would find that totally fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, the films explore that, right, to some degree. I mean, there's an yeah. intelligence um, in that, which which I think is noteworthy given that given that franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, do you ever kind of over the place? I mean, you know, there's, they respond so much to the times, of course. Um, it's well, also you, a, so a great so, I'm sorry. So you mean soci- sociologically, 
the films have a certain amount of topicality that is of interest because of when it was in production? Is that what you mean or something something other than that? We Movies are all blockbusters. They all have to respond to um, the concerns of the times. And, you know, the, the 70s Rocky is very different than 80s Rocky. Um, and I, I find that fascinating about series in general. You know, I'm always... I, I've, I've, I don't have the same place in my heart for them, but I'm, I've always was interested in those... Uh, the slasher movies for how they mm-hmm. changed, they, how they adapted from uh, from sequel to sequel. I mean, it is a, you could look at films that way, and maybe looking at films in that way connects you to your roots at the environmental studies in Harvard, because that, because that's actually what you might say is a documentarian or, or sociological, anthropological way of looking at the thing, which, after all, is part of the mix, right? Yeah, well, I'm going to forget now who what maybe it was one of the French New Wave guys. There's some filmmaker who has a, a very nice quote about how uh, every every film is a documentary of its own making, and I, that's absolutely the case. You know, you, and that's part of to, to me what's very exciting about movies and very magical about them is that um, you know I can I just a couple nights ago I went and saw um, not a not a beloved classic, but I went and saw. Easy Living from, I want to say, 1937 or so. You can go and you can sit in the theater. Oh, I love and that film. You it may not be beloved by others, but it's beloved by me. But go ahead. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's still enough of that window open. And, and more, you know, the better the film is, the more you feel that window open where you, 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 you feel 1937 come alive on the screen and in the room around you. You know, it's, it's a pretty right. magical experience um and and not something that you really get very well by 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 other means and so that's that's something i've always loved about movies is that a good movie can bring its whole era with it through the screen to you yeah it's it's really it's it's a it's actually i think an underappreciated or under um yeah underappreciated part of of film as as a genre or form Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, when it is talked about, it's often talked about in kind of a cheap and superficial way. This thing we're talking about right now, but I think you could do it in this kind of deep, really deep way. So that, for example, I, I think you and I watched were watching um, at the same time. Uh, Celie and Julie go boating. Is this we the same mm-hmm. screening? I think at the Brattle. Probably. Yeah, and so watching that, of course, it's its own film, totally unique, but it's also. 1975, right in Paris, you know, and you feel that when you watch that, that you actually feel like you're visiting time traveling to 1975 in Paris. It's a beautiful thing, and the longer yeah. the long cinema goes on, you realize how how ephemeral it is. I mean, I think people, I don't know, you know, sometimes you think you can make anything anywhere, but the, you know, these things these things have their moments. And again, as I was saying about computer chess, like we, I think we knew when we were making it. We, we maybe we caught something that's not going to be here again. You know, you can you can make another you can make another weird movie. You can make a movie that's better than that, but you can't make that movie ever again. Um, and and you know, to a large degree, that's true for every movie. But um, it's when when something feels special in particular, that's quite exciting. And it's the hardest thing to try to look for and push for in an in industrial model. You know, which is how most. Films are made. It's, it's they, they they kind of have to be made on with an assembly line mentality because people have to work for a living and keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, if it's not 
if it's not particular and it's not specific and it's not if you're not capturing something that's really right there in the air, then what's the point? Yeah. Yeah, that that becomes it becomes the point. Is there anything else you want to add about pre-production on support the girls? Um, anything that comes to mind that's noteworthy or important to mention? Pre-production? No, I don't know. I mean, or production, no. or, or or anything about it. Anything since that's a a newer newer film. Anything? Yeah. Um, no, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, there was there was that weird experience of it kind of becoming relevant as we were doing it. Um, to the culture, speaking of your interaction with the culture, but it was, you know, just yet another, in a, in a long series of um, lucky breaks, it was, we were very lucky again to have that one come together and come together as nicely as it did and to have Regina Hall um, be the, be our, um, oh, what do you call it? What do you call the thing that holds everything else together? Or the top of the arc, the keystone. Because yeah. um, I knew, you know, in writing that, to some degree, I was kind of maybe semi-consciously trying to go back to something I hadn't really done since Funny Ha Ha, which is that Funny Ha was a movie where I followed one woman around for the whole movie, and that was it. And there were, you know, not that many shots in the movie that she wasn't in. That's right. She's in. She's in. In a way, she's like she's like you, Travis Bickle. <laughs> <laughs> right, sure. In sure. the taxi driver, because, yeah. So you're saying you did that in support the girls at your? Yeah, I wanted to. I wanted to try that. It had been a while, you know. I think with mutual appreciation, I'd gotten to the triangle thing, and beeswax was kind of another triangle, and results was another triangle, and um, so uh, uh, yeah, I, I like the idea of trying to get back to just um, I'm gonna I'm gonna follow a woman around for ninety minutes and and see what I get. Um, and so of course, you know, then you need, you need, the, you need the right, the right woman to hold the movie because there is, you know, to, to the same degree that Funny Ha lives and breathes and, um, only exists by the grace of Dahlmeier's performance. I, I needed somebody to step up and do that again for this movie. And, uh, you know, it was an extraordinary, extraordinary luck that we got Regina, extraordinary luck that she was as committed as she was, as great as she was, and uh, and then also just in an external sense, I think we caught her at a very nice moment in her career when um, after after uh, working steadily and working, you know, doing great work for twenty years, she was starting to get a little groundswell of attention, and we could we could ride that press, which was nice. But I'm I'm hugely grateful to her for for taking the risk on us and for um, making that work because that's a really tough character too. It's not. Oh wow! Is it ever? I mean, that yeah. whole film is tough. I mean, to support the mm -hmm. girls. One of the things I love so much about the movie. There's many things I love about your, that film, but it's very it's tough minded. Mm -hmm. So there's a toughness to it, but there's also this optimism, this this sweetness. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a thing. You, that's if somebody would ask me what what is the thing in an Andrew Bajowski movie you can expect, <laughs> no matter the movie that those two things will be in there. It's very hard to evoke. But mm. support the girl certainly has it. Um, just and in general, I wanted before I want to talk about. Thank you again, by the way. My my feminist singer songwriter song without words. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. It's this long classical solo piano piece I wrote from uh -huh. my hard listening, and you 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 use that in your closing credits. Thank you. That's incredible. So thank yeah. you for that. T well, talk about you. why that is that sort of just a things came together. You heard it, and you said, "Well, this is I don't know." 
Well, it, it's also, it, it appears earlier in the movie, and right. you know, it was a very specific kind of um, beat where... Uh, Trying to get rid of that rock song or whatever they were listening to radio, right? Yeah, listen, yeah. yeah. Regina's character's in the car with James LeGros character, her boss, and he's uh, and he's very angry, and there's, you know, there's a kind of uncomfortable silence in the car, and he turns on the radio and turns up this country song real loud, and then she's trying to calm him down. Um, so she flips the station, and first there's a kind of, you know, NPR-ish voice, and then I wanted, you know, I figured I, I wanted her to go somewhere low on the dial. Yep. <laughs> so where I, I put the, the talk stuff there, and then maybe, um, you know, some some less less commercial sound. I, you know, we played with a few options, but I, I, I had the idea of trying a song there, and it felt really good and really fun for the scene. Um, and then once I had it in there, it was also... Um, it was nice to bring it back in the closing credits. Something felt appropriate about it. Totally appropriate. And I, again, I want to thank you for that because it just did something, you know, because when I wrote that music, I mean, I can tell you the genesis of that piece. I was actually um, trying to work um, in languages I don't normally do. Sometimes I do that in my composition. I'll, I'll, I'll approach a musical language mm -hmm. and see what's in this language to use because my generally my language is sort of j partly jazz. Mm -hmm. um, but also some non-jazz things, Hollywood and Broadway. And I thought, well, what about this singer-songwriter folk mm -hmm. language? And so literally when I wrote that piece, I locked myself in a room and listened to nothing but Laura Nairo and Joni Mitchell mm -hmm. and, and, and Carly uh, Janice Ian and mm -hmm. Carly Simon. I engrossed myself in, in these, these, this kind of music and out came that piece. Mm -hmm. But given the way I often do things, of course, it's going to be the context of using – I should say, utilizing that folk material, mm -hmm. the spirit of that, but it's in the context of a classical piano piece. Right. So there's a formal complexity, and that's what I like to do. I like to put things together. I like to use, often in my music, I always like to use what I would call popular elements, pop elements, folk elements, but I want to put them in this much more extended, formally complex setting, as if to say, well, what's the difference? Or as if to say, you know... Uh, you know, it's it's all it's all one. So I, that's I, that's kind of that's the only way I can put it. Speaking on the fly like that, but yeah, I, I, it was fascinating transmutation. Yeah, and I'm wondering if that connects to your filmmaking practice at all. I know, I know you may not think of it in the same ways, but I'm wondering uh, what you know. Maybe maybe the question about genre, or what transcends genre, or actors, or yeah. Uh, well, you know, I mean, I've learned the hard way. <laughs> That um, for at times I think I maybe you know for for uh, for career reasons it would be nice if I didn't have a, a perspective and a voice, um, but I do, <laughs> and uh, you know so when I when I when I when I write a romantic comedy when I write something that's meant to feel um, like a like a genre piece it's still. My voice is still going to be in there whether I like it or not. Um, and in the case of something like Results, I you know can I go and make a movie and I embrace that and I, and I have fun with it and I and I love that movie. Uh, it's I think it's, it's a hindrance certainly in terms of having a career and getting paid to write things because you know it is it is a particular voice and it's not always the one that that people are looking for. What do you what do you attribute that to? Like I'm somebody who's very much an outsider and I've always found your films. A source of actually, this is going to sound weird, but have a pedagogical effect on me. Like I've actually learned so much about human beings from your films because mm. you, you you portray things in, in films. Actually, I've like I've learned so much about how people interact, 
and about the nature of human psychology. I've learned as much, if not more, from your films than a lot of other films. So clearly you're gifted. Clearly you understand people. You understand emotional intelligence and you understand how people tick. So for me, those things are very entertaining and those things are very interesting. So I can't imagine what it would be like to, you know, like some people to be not interested in that or maybe put off by that or, find, you know, find it. It's, 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 it's interesting how, um, how different, different people respond to the same, the same artwork, what they get oh, from it or what they don't. It's fascinating. But, you know, it's also the artwork isn't – that's kind of the final piece of the puzzle. You know, it's like, I, I've, I've certainly always felt that way that, that um, the movie's not done until people have, have seen it and responded to it. You know, it's not it, – it isn't, it isn't anything until it's bounced off of somebody else's consciousness and you never know what you're going to get there. That's, of course, that's, that's the one piece that's completely out of your control. If you, if you had to say, guess what it is in your life, either from birth or pre-birth or um, whatever it is, that gave you this gift of understanding and also enacting in film this uh, understanding human relationship, very humanist uh, dimension, which I think is solely lacking in even, a lot, even in some films with, about character, what would you say, where do you think that comes from? Or do you think it's just innate or do you think it's that you have this... Um, you have your, your um, you understand that so well. What do you, what would yeah, you, well, I mean, you know, I, I think I have a particular, um, I don't, I don't know how well I understand anything. Um, but, uh, oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm insecure, you know, and, I'm, and so I was always trying to pay attention to what, to what everybody else was, was thinking and doing and why they were doing it. And, you know, so, so many mysteries. I mean, you know, the more you, the more you hang out with people, the more mysterious they are. Um, but it was <laughs> yeah. always that's what's always interesting to me about everything, you know. And and you, it's it's politics, and it's uh, everything that happens on Earth happens because of the the oddities of human brain chemistry. You know, we it's certainly there's plenty of indications that we're headed into um, you know unbelievable. <laughs> global crises now, um, huh. all because of the oddities of human brain chemistry and, and, uh, and how, we, how we react to each other and how we react to information. And so that's, um, that's always been what I've paid attention to, often to the exclusion of paying attention to anything else. So I guess your answer is that this has actually been your research project or kind of, so you're saying you're looking at this thing that maybe other people weren't looking at so intently or taking for granted. And so because you weren't taking it for granted, you're saying it gave you, I get, I think, artistic, I guess, material to make your films. Perhaps. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, certainly I would also say, you know, as, as I've developed as a, as a writer, I know, I know I'm only interested in, I can only get out of bed for a project that I that I don't think somebody else is going to do better, you know, and, and there's a kind of, you know, self-defensiveness about that, I suppose. But, um, if I'm going to try to, you know, I've, I've never had the instinct to try to jump on a, on a Hollywood trend and which is, and you can, if you, if you time it right, if you do it right, of course there's, there's great, great money and, uh, sometimes a claim to be made in, in jumping on the right trend at the right moment. But I always assume there are a lot of, you know, smart, talented, eager-driven people who are doing that same thing at that moment and who I don't, you know, who will do it better than I will. And so I'd rather, 
um, go find my own little weird corner that I know nobody else is going to be in, <laughs> and uh, and tinker away myself and do it at my own at my own pace with my own uh, enthusiasms and and know that no matter what you know whether the movie's good or not, no matter whether or not um, it's a disaster, uh, at least it's at least it's mine, and at least we we did it on our own terms. And when I say mine, also you know, it's also a great joy to, to part of the reason I'm not a novelist, besides the lack of attention span, um, is that uh, it's a real thrill to get then whether it is a dozen people or a hundred people together to um, make something come come to life and and come to life in ways that are ultimately going to be better than what I could, could do on my own, more, more interesting, more textured, more strange. And, and again, that comes from documentary. You know, let's go make a documentary about what we're doing mm. right together. Um, and that's something, you know, my wife, my wife is a novelist. And yeah, I wanted to talk about that because I, I loved All the Houses. That's the only novel, novel of hers I've read uh-huh. um, thus far. But I, again, I was happy to read that. And I'm very much looking forward to her new work, yeah, well, the Bay Conjectures. It's uh, about Simon Simon Vale. Am I is it correct? The yeah, W E I L. Yeah, Bay's. I'm Bay. sure. Yeah, right. But um, oh, it's a beautiful book. Is that? I think I think you'll respond to it. Have anybody who's listening, Karen Olson? O L S O N. Karen Karen Olson. O L S S O N. Her new novel is. Talk, do you want to, her new novel is a it's historical fiction of the sort, right? Well, it's a real. It, I mean. Speaking of you know unrepeatable things, it's a uh, it's it's quite unique structurally and kind of genre wise. I mean, it is it's. I think some reviewer somewhere compared it to uh, a turducken, which I liked. Um, so you know, it's kind of a it's almost a, a book inside of a book inside of a book. It's it's, oh, kind wow. of, it's it it's sort of a sort of a biography of Simone and Andre Bay. Um, but also, you know, tucked inside that is a kind of memoir and tucked inside that is kind of a philosophical essay. It's really just wow. Karen, um, you know, through thinking about these, uh, fascinating historical figures, um, but also thinking about, you know, her own, Andre Bay was a, was a mathematician. Karen was a math major herself years ago. Oh, okay. Uh, so she's thinking about math, thinking about philosophy, thinking about really kind of all the grand, the grand questions, but it's not, it's a very ground level book. I think that's part of what's so magical about it is that it's, it really is just someone, um, I think very, very relatably sitting there and thinking about, um, these big, these huge ideas about, about, uh, creativity and, and, you know, truth and beauty and, um, but but thinking about them in just in, in in how we feel them in our own daily lives and how these extraordinary people felt them in their lives. Um, so yeah, it's a quite a quite an extraordinary book. Well, good. I'm I'm glad I'm glad to uh, uh, to tell people about it. Where can people uh, get should get that? Book? Oh, anywhere they want. You know, it's, uh, hopefully it's at your local bookstore if your local bookstore still exists. But it's also on Amazon and all those things as well. Okay, and and. You obviously want people to see support the girls mm. who have not yet seen it. Every mm-hmm. every man, woman, and child. Um, sure. Where 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 do you like people to watch that? Or what oh, is your again wherever you want? I think it's yeah. for, for, the, for the streamers out there. I believe it's on Hulu, but you know it's also. Um, I think you can download it on on Amazon or any of those 
Penny sites and you know they, anybody who still has DVDs and Blu-rays, those we got those too. Excellent. Um, well, we've been talking for a good a good length of time. I've really enjoyed this immensely, Andrew, and it's really great to go into detail about some of these things rather than talking about them in a superficial way or or, or talking about them in a way that that you know relies too much on labels or media stuff and all that. So um, I want to thank you for doing so and, and coming on the show. Um, been good fun. Thank you. Is there anything else you but before we? Uh, as you know, I hate to say goodbye, but I'm, we're going to have to say goodbye at some point. Is there anything else you want to talk about or that's on your mind about these films or anything? Or, oh, um, no. I'm, my mind is a blank. Mitch. It has been for as long as you know. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. So since, since that's the case now, I think we're going we're gonna to say goodbye. But th thanks very much, Andrew. This was a treat. My pleasure. Thank, Thank you, Mitch. Mom. Thank you.